Listener Production. Welcome to Real Crime Features. I'm Adam Shand. This podcast was originally published as part of New South Wales Police State Crime Command. At 4am on September 24th, 1983, Mary Wallace left a nightclub in North Sydney with a stranger, Robert John Adams, who claimed to be a policeman. Mary was never seen again. This is the story of a murder investigation that stretched over 34 years. The work of two generations of police brought it to closure. The killer of Mary Wallace is in jail, but this case is not quite over. Adams has never revealed what he did with her remains, nor even confessed to the murder. Investigators continue to seek answers to questions from 1983, including who first alluded police to the identity of the killer. Was it the same person who wrote a strange note to police weeks after the disappearance? It came with a map, a page torn from a street directory that gave a location for Mary's remains. Nothing was found despite extensive searches. This could have been a hoax or a clue that's still relevant to the hunt for Mary's remains. The note contained references to evidence that the public was not aware of. Perhaps this was written by a witness to the crime, or even by the killer himself. This heavy downpour got me thinking about maybe Mary's body might turn up after this weather event. I just feel that sometimes this washes away a whole lot of things and things are exposed. And we might find her, might uncover where she's been buried. She could be just under in a shallow grave somewhere or just covered with debris from the bush. So maybe we might find Mary. Pauline Biddle was Mary Wallace's best friend. They were trainee nurses together in Sydney in the 1970s. And she hasn't given up hope that one day Mary will be found. I often think, well, when there's been a bushfire through our national parks or a flood like we've just had now, or heavy rains, we don't know that someone might find her, they might just come across her walking in the bush. Or it might be an article of clothing or a piece of jewellery that surfaces after all these years. I know what she had on that night because we discussed what she was wearing that night when she was going out. She was wearing a woolen skirt and a woolen jumper. It was spring and it was cool and she'd had a a woolen skirt on. I'm not sure if it was black or green and she had a jumper on which is either black or green as well. And she used to love George Jensen jewellery and she had some lovely pieces that she'd purchased or was given and she would have had those on. She would have had a ring on and a bangle and something around her neck. The last time I spoke to Mary was that evening before she went out. Pauline and Mary would often catch up after work for a drink. 
They were part of a group of friends that socialised in pubs and clubs in the North Sydney area. We had friends at wine bars that we used to go to that we'd catch up on. We'd listen to music there. They often had live music. So, you know, we'd go knowing that we'd always run into someone that we knew there as well. But that night... Mary had other plans. She had arranged a party for a group of people from Hunters Hill Hospital. They were both the nursing staff and the medical staff and partners and they were going to a restaurant in Crow's Nest, a Chinese restaurant, and she was quite worried about it because she had organised it and there was a quite a large party of people. She was waiting for a car to pick her up because she said, I'm not driving tonight because I'm going to have a drink. And she was just on the phone to me before the car arrived. It was the last time Pauline would speak to Mary. She would have a long wait for justice. Despite a thorough investigation, police could not find enough evidence to lay charges against Adams and the investigation was eventually shelved. After a couple of years, when they were looking for um, bodies down at the Belangolo Forest, I did get another phone call from um, one of the detectives saying that Mary's case was still open. That was years later. And then Nicole turned up on my doorstep quite a few years ago and said that they were looking into the cold case. In February 2008 a member of the newly formed Unsolved Homicide team had Mary's case. Yeah, so my name's Nicole Jones. Um, I'm an inspector of police and I've been in the police force now for about 20 years. I started out in general duties in uh, Newtown Police Station and then subsequently uh, became involved in a homicide investigation that took me to the Homicide Squad, which is actually where I started on this case. And funnily enough, I'm back at Inner West Police now, so i um, Full circle. So uh, initially when I when I joined the Homicide Squad, I was put in the Unsolved Homicide Team and this was actually the first case that I was ever given. I was very aware early on that me looking at this case again, I could be the last person that ever looked at this case. So I really wanted to give it everything I could to get a result for the family. It was known as a difficult case to begin with. We knew that the body of Mary Wallace was never located, so that was obviously a hurdle. There was no forensic or fingerprint DNA evidence at that time that we knew of. So it was always going to be a difficult case. And my sergeant, he sort of said, look, this is going to be a difficult one, but there's a really strong person of interest. And if you can crack this case, it's going to be a really worthwhile case to bring closure to the family. I spent probably the first couple of months just going through all the case files. And what I learned early on was that the original detective, Jim Council, he did a really thorough, good investigation. A 30-year veteran, Detective Inspector Jim Council was one of the state's best detectives. Known as Gentleman Jim for his professionalism and care for victims' families, Council worked on scores of high-profile murder cases in 10 years on the Homicide Squad. He retired in 1995 with Mary Wallace unsolved. And I know Jim was very frustrated that he wasn't able to arrest and charge Robert Adams. He knew from the get-go that Robert Adams was responsible for the murder of Mary Wallace. He just fell short in evidence. He did an incredible investigation. My name is Jim Council. I'm a retired detective inspector. I spent some time at the Homicide Squad. During that time, I uh, investigated quite a number of uh, murders and was in charge of the uh, investigation into Mary Louise Wallace. 
I think we needed something else other than what we had to uh, successfully uh, prosecute him. I was hoping that at some stage we may have located the body and had we located the body then perhaps I could have attempted to interview him further and uh, I may have been able to then obtain additional evidence to substantiate the charge. Nicole Jones. It was his attention to detail back then that really assisted us in getting us over the line all these years later. But he did package it up at the end of the investigation, as difficult as that would have been for him to package up the case files and put it to bed, so to speak. Thank goodness he did it the way he did because we were able to find them and, and really this is where we are today and Robert Adams is in prison. Nicole Jones again. I certainly looked at a number of other potential persons of interest, people that had been sort of nominated through various means, whether that be members of the public calling up, providing evidence, providing names of people that they thought could be involved, but every single one of those lines of inquiries were chased down and eliminated. I always came back to Robert Adams. Pauline Biddle. She was quite tenacious and she was very professional. She came to the house here and we sat down, we chatted and she had another detective with her. I had a lot of things that I had kept that Mary had sent me during our nursing days. I had bits of her handwriting on cards and things like that and I had all the um, cuttings from the papers and my first statement Nicole Jones. I read a lot about Mary Wallace, who she was as a person. I mean, she was a fun-loving woman. She was very much loved by her friends and family. And she just went out on a night out with her friends and family from the hospital. She worked at uh, Hunters Hill Private Hospital. I believe one of the doctors that she worked with was having a farewell. So she went out with a group of friends. She'd had a couple of drinks that night. She was a bit tipsy. She'd previously had an operation, I believe, on a gallbladder, which made her more prone to getting drunk, I guess, yeah. So she had a few drinks and they went from a number of different wine bars and they ended up at the Alpine Inn, which is in North Sydney. They were all having a really good time. And then later on that night, she was seen to talk with a man who turns out to be Robert Adams. And her friends were sort of looking at her and monitoring her and then she seemed to be having a good time and seemed to want to talk to him. But then she disappeared and one of her friends found her in one of the toilets and she was being sick and she closed up the door and she had locked the toilet door. A friend was in there trying to get her out and she looked through the door and she could see that Mary was clothed and just sitting on the toilet and she was quite sick. So she wanted to get her out and wanted to get her home. So as she was bashing on the door, Robert Adams walked by the toilet and said, is everything okay? And her friend said, look, she's actually quite sick. I want to get her home. And he said, well, I'll bash the door in. I should be used to it. I'm a police officer. So the friend thought, okay, well, let's get her out of the toilet and home. So that's what he did. He hit the door, the door swung open and Mary was sitting there. And then he said to the friend, look, I've got my car just out the front. I can give her a lift home. I know that she lives in Dremoyne, which was true. And then the friend, she was a bit hesitant. You know, she didn't know this man, but he said, look, you can trust me, I'm a police officer. And with that, she decided it was a good idea for whatever reason and she helped Mary into the front seat of Robert Adams' vehicle that was parked out the front. And that's the last that anybody ever saw of Mary Wallace. Little did Mary's colleagues know that she had fallen victim to a sexual predator and her disappearance wasn't discovered until the next evening. So the alarm was raised by Mary's father the following day. It was her sister's birthday 
and they had arranged for a family get-together and Mary didn't turn up. And it was very, very unusual. Mary would always speak with the family members regularly and it wasn't like her to not turn up to something like this. Police at the time were upbeat about a quick resolution to this case. They had a clear description of a suspect and his vehicle. Well, yes, they were confident. They did a sketch of him and put him on in the paper and, and on the news. It was probably Monday or Tuesday of the following week and I did a uh, media release asking for public assistance and uh, the following morning... I received a phone call at Chatswood Police Station from a male person who said to me, the person you're looking for is Bob Adams. He drives a brown Commodore sedan. He gave me the registered number and then hung up. There was a lot of exposure. It was the weekend before we won the America's Cup. As Sydney celebrated the America's Cup win, Jim Council was looking for the man in the brown Commodore sedan. Homicide squad detectives have made a major breakthrough in the search for missing Dremoyne nurse Mary Wallace. 11 days after Mary disappeared, at 11.30pm, Council and a colleague were driving through the area where she went missing when they spotted Adams in the car that his anonymous caller had identified. Nicole Jones. He spotted that vehicle driven by Robert Adams, the same vehicle that he drove away with Mary Wallace on the night in September 83. And so Jim Council pulled that vehicle over and spoke with Robert Adams at the time. And what was his demeanour like when you stopped him? He was aggressive. He's always been an aggressive type of person. What did he say to you? Well, the story he gave us was that he drove down Willoughby Road in a westerly direction, turned left at the first intersection, drove about 100 yards up the street, pulled over and told Mary that he was too drunk to drive her home. And he said they uh, they began kissing and cuddling and so forth and he had consensual sex with her. Then he went to sleep and woke up at 5am that same morning and uh, she was gone from the car. He had no more to offer than that. Crucially, his vehicle was subjected to a search at the time and they found drugs in his vehicle. Now, because they found drugs in his vehicle, his vehicle was towed to the holding yard at the police station and it went for a more thorough investigation, a forensic-type investigation, as much as a forensic search could be conducted back in 83 when DNA testing really wasn't involved. Robert Adams, he lived with a male and a female in the North Sydney area at the time. The female flatmate actually witnessed him hosing out his car some days after the disappearance of Mary Wallace. And she found it very strange. She recalls watching him do this from her bedroom window. And she remembers that he'd pulled off his car seat covers, that he'd washed them, and they were on the line. She also remembers that he had the hose and that he actually was hosing out the inside of the vehicle and the boot. She remembers the water filling up in the boot and just thought that was very strange behaviour. Why would somebody hose out the boot? Adams told his flatmates that he'd killed some ducks in the Lane Cove National Park and they'd been in the boot. They never saw any ducks. Despite Adams' attempt to remove evidence from his car, police found two hairs in the boot they believe could have been Mary Wallace's. Well, at that stage, there wasn't DNA available to police and I was given information by the scientific man that if we were able to obtain some hair from her unit, maybe if I took both quantities of hair to uh, Lucas Heights, there was a 
scientists out there who may be able to identify it as being similar. This was the CSIRO's Science and Technology Centre in Sydney. I didn't take all the hair out. I took some hair from the hairbrush and some hair from the boot and retained some. And I took the hair out to this guy at Lucas Heights, but he was unable to get a match. He couldn't say yes or no. It was a disappointing result. With an eye to the future, Jim Council filed the hair samples away in a brown paper evidence bag. The police at the time also seized a pair of overalls and these overalls had spots of blood or what appeared to be blood on them. I found the overalls when I recommenced the investigation and I was ecstatic. I thought if ever there's a chance of getting forensic material from an exhibit, it's going to be from these overalls. There was also a pair of vice grips that there was a note that they'd also had blood on them. So I immediately had those retested. Now, unfortunately, nothing came back from the vice grips. The overalls that had previously been tested forensically some years later. The forensic police had actually cut out the circles of material that had been splashed with what we thought was blood. And the process had consumed that material, so I didn't have that. So it was very frustrating. But what I did have was a bag that the police had vacuumed. Nicole Jones had hit a roadblock in her investigation, but the contents of this plain brown paper bag would later prove crucial. In the meantime, Jones looked into Adam's background, as counsel had done at the time. Uh, Look, he was a career criminal. He had a quite extensive, violent criminal history. He started off committing petty crimes, and then as he became an adult, he became a, a violent criminal. He was known to have committed sexual assaults on women, and the more I looked at Robert Adams' criminal history the more it became apparent that he was a violent sexual offender. He was certainly somebody that we really needed to work on uh, with this investigation, especially given that he was the last person to see Mary Wallace alive. And and in fact, he admitted that to police back in 83. Adam's criminal history would be crucial to convicting him, especially if Mary's body could not be found. Jones found that Adam's behaviour that night conformed to a previous pattern. He had a very specific MO. He purported to be a police officer. He would pick women up in wine bars in the North Sydney area. He would buy them drinks, tell them he's a police officer to gain their trust. And then he would lure them generally back to his vehicle. And as soon as they were inside his vehicle, he would shut the door, lock the doors, and then he would try and have sex with them. And if they they didn't want to have sex with him, he would force them to. He came up a number of occasions doing this particular MO to women in the 80s. So how many different attacks do you think there were? Look, I think there were at least five. um, And I believe that he did exactly this with Mary Wallace, only that this time in September 1983, he went too far and he strangled her to death. Jim Council had come to the same conclusion, but without a body, his investigation was in danger of losing momentum. And then a mysterious envelope arrived at police headquarters. 30 years later the meaning of its contents and the intent of the author would still be unclear. From Alpine came RA, with MW in tow. Into MMA to see what's the go. Sex with MW, then death and bury low. State Crime Command is produced in collaboration with the New South Wales Police Force and Real Crime Australia. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Original music and mixing by Matt Nikolic. 
The associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nolly Way Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. Listener.